The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. On the podcast, why can't I free your doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart? Probably because we are traipsing through the Arctic regions of Norfresa. Hard copy hardcovers and anti-zombie armor. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of our interview with David Weber, who discusses the newest addition to the Norfresa fantasy series, The Sword of the South. This book begins a new cycle within the series. The previous books in the series make up the Basel cycle, as David is calling it, and this new entry is the beginning of the Kinhoden cycle, although Basel is very much present in this book as well. We have just a great concluding discussion about the book, and that's coming up. If you want to have a look at the great four-color map of this fantasy world, we have it online. You can find it at bain.com forward slash sosmap.jpg. That's bain.com sosmap.jpg. And there is still time to get a copy of the year's best military SF and space opera and vote for your favorite story. We will give the winning author a snazzy plague, I mean plaque, plus 500 smackaroonies at Dragon Con in Atlanta on Labor Day. Details on how to vote are in the book, and so you need the book. You can get that at booksellers everywhere. Also, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. But first, here's the news. Do you hear that sound of approaching thunder? You do? Yes, it's the August hardcovers, and they are already in your neck of the woods, raising clouds of dust and frightening snakes and spiders who believe that they own the place. Well, they don't. This month, we have The Sword of the South by David Weber. We'll talk to David about this shortly. It is indeed a new book in the Norfresa world, introducing a compelling new character and a new buddy for Basel. Also out is His Father's Eyes by David B. Coe. 
This is book two in the case files of Justice Fearson, the contemporary fantasy mystery series. It's a type mystery and adventure with magic and a noir element for flavoring. Also, it's set in Phoenix, Arizona and environs, and I think David Coe does a wonderful job of evoking the sense of place in this book. By the way, we will have an interview with David B. Coe talking about the book on a future podcast. The Sword of the South by David Weber and His Father's Eyes by David B. Coe are now available at booksellers everywhere and in all Dave's stores, where you can also find the works of David Drake, Dave Freer, Hank Davis, Eric Dave Flint, and John Dave Ringo. Now here is part two and the conclusion of a two-part interview with David Weber. He discusses his new Norfressa high fantasy novel that takes place in the Basel Bonnickson universe. The book is The Sword of the South. Part one of the interview is available in last week's podcast. So tell us about the bad guys. The bad guy is deliberately uh, a shadowy figure uh, in this in this story. It's you actually find out quite a lot about him, and yet when you get to the end of it and you're looking at the the you know how much do I actually know about him, where he came from, who he is, there's a lot of stuff that isn't explained, and that's deliberate, of course. Uh, eventually, it will be uh, explained. Um, but, um, uh, one of the things that is, uh, okay, the, 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 the proximate villain in this book is, uh, Baroness Wolfram. And, uh, she's, uh, 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 a handful in her own right. Um, readers may not realize that this is actually, uh, a revision, fairly substantial in some ways, of the very first novel I ever submitted anywhere, um, which was um, uh, rejected, turned down. Uh, yes, it happened even to me. Um, and one of the reasons that it was rejected by an editor who shall remain nameless is that it didn't have a credible villain. And the only thing that I could figure out was that uh, when when the final confrontation between Wolfra and between Wolfra and Winsett occurs, Wolfra doesn't just cringe and say, "Oh, please, 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 don't kill me." I mean, you know, I, that's the only thing I could figure out as to why there wasn't a credible villain involved. Because it seemed to me that she was pretty villainous uh, in in her own way, um, and yet not even a villain is is going to be totally without any admirable characteristics. And, for example, villains can be brave, which is really what happens in Wolfram's case. Um, but the, the, um, the, the, the puppet master who's pulling her strings, who's using her for his purposes in this, is this fellow we call the Cat-Eyed Wizard, uh, which is all you ever know him as in this book, but there are some pretty uh, strong clues as you get towards the end of the book, especially, uh, about his ancestry, at least, 
Um, and it's pretty clear to everybody, I hope, that he is generally considered to be the most powerful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the, uh, the lords of Carnadosa, the members of the Council of Carnadosa that rules Cantavar and is planning to zap Norfressa. Um, one thing that has not been made completely clear in the books yet, it's there by implication, but nobody's explicitly said so, is the bad guys don't want to conquer Norfressa just to be conquering Norfressa. It's not like, oh, we need the land, you know, we need the oil, we need the this. The, the reason is that they are very consciously working for the triumph, ultimate triumph of the dark in Orfressa. Norfressa means daughter of the north. It's the northern continent. Orfressa is the name of the planet of the universe itself. Uh, it means the daughter of Or, the head of the pantheon. Uh, Kantavar, um, is, uh, uh, old Kantavaran, if you will, for the, for the, the birthland. And they also call it Hakramanthi, which means, uh, the grave of evil. That's what they called it after everybody boogied out for Narfressa. Um, but the Kantavarans want to arrange the triumph of the dark because if the dark wins, they'll be in positions of power, etc., etc., etc. The powers of light folks like Basel want to make sure the dark loses because they don't like the world that everybody would then be living in. Um, so the, the basis of the conflict is not anything like simple revanchism or or uh, Lebensraum or anything like that. It is uh, a matter of the fundamental cosmic fate, ultimately, of this entire universe, and thereby, if you will, the entire multiverse that this universe is one strand of. Um, so there's there, the, the, the people on both sides of this war who realize what's really going on, because a lot of people in North Fresa especially don't at this point, um, the, 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 the stakes are about as high as it gets. As befits a high fantasy. Well, yeah. Well, one of the things you can do in fantasy is... You can do it in science, but you can do it in any kind of storytelling. But fantasy, I think, lends itself particularly well um, to the area of what I think of as um, morally disambiguified storytelling. Um, some people like fantasy, which has all of the 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 the, the grimy, gritty uh, uh, shades of gray of, uh, of of real life. Other people like fantasy in which that never intrudes. It's all you know, high and noble versus utterly depraved uh, uh, kind of thing. I kind of come in in a middle ground um one of the uh the features it's been part of everything i've written one way or another uh all the way back to uh insurrection with steve white is um for want of a better term 
uh, the the uh, the power of of, uh, of reclamation uh, of somebody who has made a horrible mistake, done terrible things, um, redeeming himself or herself uh, by by coming to grips with the consequences of their actions and saying, "Oh my God!" Uh, if you look at um, Trying to remember um, his name uh, from from insurrection, uh, Oscar Oscar Dieter. Um, Oscar Dieter is directly responsible in many ways for the for the beginning of the civil war in the Federation because he sets in train uh, a a uh, line uh, a chain of events that leads to the assassination of the McTaggart. Uh, the secession of the fringe, etc., and yet he winds up as prime minister, working desperately to 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 bring the the carnage and the bloodshed to an end and find some basis for reconciliation. Um, and that happens in a lot of my books um, if you, when 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 you come down to it. And I think that it's partly because that's one of the things that I believe in. Um, so there are some characters in this book, uh, and will be in, in later books, um, who are going to have to make some hard decisions uh, about who they are and what they really believe on both sides, all sides of, of the struggle. Um, and then there's also the fact that, by the way, I should point this out, there's a lot of stuff going on in this novel. Uh, that uh, springboards off of the novella Sword Brother that I did to be bound into the trade uh, uh, paper release of Oath of Swords. Um, and the book will make sense for you if you didn't read the novella. It will make a lot more sense for you if you have read the novella. There are some comments that go back and forth between... Uh, between Bazel and Tominic, for example, and, and Bazel and Walsharno, his, his, uh, his courser, um, think, uh, Clydesdale-sized Arabian, uh, with good acceleration. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, the, um, uh, there are things going on in there that will make more sense to you if you have read Sword Brother. Um, and, You'll probably be fine if you didn't, but uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, uh, Tony, is that still available in in hardcover from Bain? Do you know? I mean, in, in paper? Um, I, I'm not sure. Of course, it is available in ebook form. Yeah, yeah. Well, for uh, sure. You know, but you're talking like you're talking 21st century here. You know, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I I would seriously recommend that. And I think a lot of people don't even know that novella is out there. Uh, so that probably would be a good Well, I, I, I have a sneaking, I don't know for sure. I could go ask Marla, actually. But I don't think there's any Weber books that are out of print. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, okay, so in that case, uh, all of you listening to this podcast who don't have that book, um, go and find or borrow a copy of it. Um, and. Um, Read, uh, read Sword Brother. Um, it's kind of, uh, the U.S. Marine Corps meets Norfressa. 
Um, <laughs> and I <laughs> promise it actually, as bizarre as that sounds, it actually makes a, a modicum of sense once you get a hold of it. Uh, but it deals with uh, some of the same concepts uh, that are are fundamental to the decisions that Winsett and company and Ken Houghton are having to make uh, right this minute. Um, and uh, for, the, for those of you who have read uh, Warmage Choice, there's a little confrontation there between Winsett and one of the, the dark lords in which he explains what will happen if anybody ever, and I mean like ever, tries to use sorcery against um, Lyanna. Um, and you kind of sort of find out what some of that was about in the course of this book. Um, I didn't tell you everything there is to know about it, and that was deliberate because this is one of those, you know, ongoing revelation things. Um, I will tell those of you who have read the earlier books that those rotten, nasty purple lords, they're very unhappy at the beginning of this book because the, the Durham Canal has done exactly what Bonnock and, and Kilfin uh, and, and Leanna's dad uh, wanted it to do. Um, and um, that leads them to, in the, to paraphrase uh, um, the, 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 uh, uh, the last of the Indiana, movie, Indi the, the Indiana Jones movies, um, he chose poorly. Uh, they choose poorly <laughs> in the course of this book. <laughs> well, in the course of this book, the course of this series. Um, and there will be, unfortunately for them, uh, a small price for the, uh, for the decision that they make. Um, I will also say this, uh, in the interest of playing fair with, with my readers, the body count in this series is going to be high, people. Um, and uh, that's going to include uh, uh, a lot of characters who you are going to be deeply attached to um, when they when 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 we lose them, um, and that is part and parcel of the nature of the struggle that they're facing and the prices that get paid sometimes uh, for doing the uh, doing the right thing um, and it's the cost that you assume when you make the decision that you know is the right decision even though you also know that it's going to be really really costly um, and this is something that Winsett is carrying around with him um, as part of who he is is the fact that he knows what this is likely to cost people that he's let himself care for. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a point in here where he, he, uh, he tells Ken Houghton that uh, love tears holes in you. Uh, that when you see so many people who you know you're going to lose them anyway because you're, you're flipping, you know, immortal for all intents and purposes or pretty close to it. So anybody you let you you let yourself care for, you're going to lose. But even worse is knowing that you let yourself care for them and they got too close to you and involved themselves in this this 
this thousands of years long quest that you've been uh, struggle that you've been embarked upon, um, and that's what killed them. He says, you know, eventually you reach a point where you can't even cry anymore, um, and that's part of what this whole series is about. It's I don't think of it as uh, a series where people are going to be like, well, that was depressing <laughs> you know, when they get to the end of it. Uh, I think it will rather be the reverse, but it will be one where the characters are going to pay the price of the, of the stances that they take. Um, and I will also say that there is a point in the book which some of the folks who have read the e-arc and whatnot have questioned uh, it's a time notation for how long something's been going on. Um, and all I will say is that it is not a typo. And that's all I'll say about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Bazell, Ken Hoden, and Winsett, um, they're making this huge journey across this enormous map. Uh, and we have really cool new maps that mapmaker Randy Asplund made. Um, for the book, and uh, unfortunately, uh, for the one the one unfortunate thing about the maps, and it's entirely my fault, is I think I misplaced a decimal point when I told Randy how big the the scale needed to be, uh, because the the if you t- look at how long it takes Winston and Ken Hoden to actually make the journey, and you measure it out against the map, they get there really, 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 really quick. Uh, because the scale on the map is, is off just a little bit. It's consistent all the way through. Uh, but, uh, and that, that's entirely, entirely my fault. We were corresponding back and forth, Randy and I were, and he did a dynamite job with it. He's a gorgeous man. Um, but, um, I didn't realize until I actually got my copy of it that you guys sent me and, and, and was looking at it. I'd actually, I was showing it off. I've had already had it for a month or two, I think. And somebody said, is that scale right? And we started measuring and discovered that it's like going lengthwise across the Americas to go from one side to the other <laughs> on the current map. But it's a gorgeous map. It is beautiful. And Randy based it on a map that you made years ago. Um, can you tell us how 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 did this setting come to you? Um, how did you develop it? The original map that Randy was working from uh, was drawn in 1968 in my bedroom um, by me <laughs> um, because I was doing Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games uh, before Dungeons and Dragons was invented. Uh, back when Chainmail and Greyhawk were the basis for it. You were building your own universes. And this was the universe that I built for my wargaming group when I was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> that, that's where this universe came from initially. Uh, and um, I gamed in it uh, all the way through graduate school and... Uh, for many years after graduate school, really up until probably 15 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, when uh, 
and the writing schedule got too much for me and the travel got too much for my group, which had scattered, you know, and gone about their lives in, in the meantime. Uh, but I started building the, um, the cosmology for this, this universe as part of the, the universe I was creating for people to go, uh, role play in. Uh, and that's one reason why the political structure is as firmly set as it is in my in my mind. This is the only series, the only series that I'm working on that I didn't do a tech bible on, because I already knew everything that was going on in it. If you follow me, now there are modifications because every so often you'll hit a fantasy novel and you can almost hear the dice clicking because it's it's so clearly you know somebody has just transposed their uh their uh RPG universe and probably possibly even RPG adventures that they've had into the novel. And that works. That works. Uh but there were deeper things that I wanted to do in this in this universe. Uh things I wanted to look at, uh uh questions that I wanted to to uh explore. Uh, for example, how did I, um, how did I rationalize, uh, an omniscient deity with a deity who couldn't tell his or her servants what was going to happen? Um, and how did I rationalize making in a universe where the gods take an active role? How did I rationalize what was my take on why human or or mortal decision making even mattered um in the original um uh oath of swords novel where we first meet Basel, um he says to Tomenake, he says it's no good you're asking me to just you know bow down to you and worship you and ask you to tell me what to do everywhere and Tomenake says, "What in the world makes you think that's what I want?" You know, I got met people who do that. I want you because you make decisions, because you make choices, and I want to I want to help empower you when you make those decisions and those choices. But it's the fact that you make the choices that you make, which make you suitable to be a champion uh, of of the gods of light. And that was one of the issues that I that I wanted to to play around with in in doing this this universe. So it's a lot more than just a place where I where people can go and you know have adventures uh, and go on quests and and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, there have been some neat ones over the years in in Norfressa. Um, and one of these days, since I already worked the entire place out as uh, uh, as a gaming universe, I may actually see about doing uh, uh, an RPG specifically set in Norfressa, uh, which I would be kind of cool um, if I could find the, the space in my copious free time. <laughs> well, I can imagine uh, a lot of people would, would love that. But uh, the thing, the themes of the books, and especially this one, is, uh, I mean, it's about the nature of good and evil and about what free will means and you know, you you don't bang it on the head or anything, but there's you know this is a novel. It's it's not a role playing game, and it's about the the choices these characters make that change them, or don't. The same sort of thought that goes into creating 
a fully realized or as close to it as you can get uh, RPG universe goes into creating the background for a novel. The most successful RPG adventures are those that are put together because there's a context for what's going on in the adventure. There's there's uh, a thread that ties it together. And they have the detailed background that allows the people who are who are role playing to interact with another world. Okay. Um novels are also interactive. Um and they they need that same type of of fleshed out background. But that that has to be there in the writer's mind while he's telling the story at the very least. Uh, because it provides the framework, the platform on which the characters stand uh, while they are dealing with the challenges that he sets for them in the story. Where RPGs and novels, I think, diverge is that RPGs are set up for the reader slash player to be active participants in. And I think they tend to be simplistic is not the word that I want, but they do tend to be very um, action-reaction driven, if you will. Uh, Whereas in a novel framework, the writer is getting inside the thoughts and the motives and the actions of somebody who is not one of the players in his universe. And that means that he can deal with issues and concepts on a level that isn't really what most people are looking for in an RPG in the first place, and where it would be very difficult for him to have the same degree of control that he has in a novel, in a story. Um, I'm not sure that I'm I'm putting it as clearly as I'd like to, uh, but RPGs are someplace where the creator of the universe, the creator of the story, goes to share the world building in a way with his gamers, the other people participating in it with him. And a novel, a story, even if it's based on an RPG universe, is someplace where the author goes to create a a, a vehicle which lets him look at what he thinks are the fundamental aspects of what make people work and what makes the universe work. Um, I've been on some RPG quests in my time and I've read some books in my time where it was, you know, really great action uh, and, and, you know, and yet you never really got more than skin deep 
into why these people were doing this, uh, what were the stakes that were in play here, what were the, the, the costs, the personal costs to the individuals involved, and what really are the consequences of their failing? Um, where does the difference between failing to accomplish your goal and failing to try to accomplish your goal What's the difference between the two? What implications does it have for the person who tries and fails as opposed to the person who never tries at all? Those are the sorts of things that you can deal with, that you can lay before the reader in a novel that is very difficult to lay before the gamer who is busy shaping and pushing the adventure himself or herself well that makes sense um and 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 it's something that the reader thinks about um and that that becomes part of their life in a way perhaps that um just just because it's it's really about every part of their life instead of uh just the i don't know the recreation i, I don't want to get into uh, we could of course talk about this for quite a while yeah. I, I i'll say i'll say i'll say this um Every writer, whether he intends to or not, climbs up onto a soapbox the instant he starts to write. Because if I take a character that you really like uh, uh, and who you admire, and I give that character a view or a belief that would otherwise be alien to you, one that you might reject without even thinking about it, uh, then in a way I've sort of, opened a door into making that concept acceptable to you because this person who you like and admire holds that view. Um, and because of that, I think that writers have a uh, responsibility to play fair with their readers um, and, and uh, try to show more than one perspective, but also to write in a way where Presumably, the reader will be able to form at least some judgment of the values of the author and the way in which they shape his presentation of the material. Yeah. Rather than, you know, uh, there, there's sort of almost a compact between the writer and the and the reader, um, and it it's a very subtle compact in some ways. Uh, there's, the, the most fundamental part of it is that if it's my job as a storyteller to tell a story will, that will engage the reader and that the reader will want to be engaged by. That's the most fundamental part of it. But there are also, I think, some obligations about playing fair with the reader uh, not uh, using you know cheap tricks to get where you want, and not um, not pretending that the issues aren't complicated. Mm -hmm. You gave us some idea of why of where your themes come from. I mean, it sounded a bit to me like a theist wanting to to examine um, his own conception of free will and good and evil in the world. Um, what are some of your influences? Um, you know, outside of chain mail, that um, that led to uh, 
inspiration for the series. I mean, obviously, there's some epic fantasy. Um, yeah. As well, I mean, because uh, Bazel is <laughs> has a resemblance to a lot of big hulking, great fantasy character <laughs> swordsmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With 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 a ginger kindler self down inside there. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously anybody who says uh, who writes fantasy who hasn't been influenced by Tolkien, um, I'm not sure where they've been for the last you know fifty sixty years. Um, but um, Howard, um, obviously, you know, I mean, if you are, if you write a heroic swashbuckling fantasy bigger than life warrior characters, etc., you've been influenced by Robert Howard, even if you never read him, because whoever you read was influenced by him before you got there. Um, and there have been, there have been others. I always loved, um, uh, merit, a merit. Um, uh, when mm-hmm. I was a kid growing up, uh, uh, dwellers in the mirage, uh, the ship of Ishtar. Um, fantasy, I think, tends. I, I I tend to think of science fiction as being, you know, the fairy tales of a technic society. Uh, in the sense that they are teaching tales, they're cautionary tales, they're, you know, all the things that, that, uh, fairy tales were designed to be. Uh, but they use the, the, the furniture of a technological society rather than one where we didn't have scientific explanations for everything. But I think that fantasy tends in many ways to engage, uh, in more, well, one of a better term, universal story images than a lot of science fiction does one of the things i want to ask you about is um will we see the completion of ken hoden's quest i mean it seems obviously obvious we will do you have an idea of how many books that's going to take well i'm estimating i'm estimating five uh now on the other hand i originally estimated the honor harrington series would go to six Mm -hmm. so uh, the, the big difference between the honor harrington's and the ken hoden books is that I have a very, very specific sequence of events in mind for these books. With the Honor Harrington books, I knew where the series was going to begin, and I knew where the series was going to end, and I knew who the people who were going to be in it were. But I didn't have a uh, a, a blow-by-blow uh, thought in my brain for every step along the way. For these books, because there are these issues of what the gods can see about the future uh, and everything else, I have to have a much more concrete uh, literary timeline, if you will, uh, in mind uh, to make them to, to make them work out. I can't go with ooh, shiny, and go off and do something else that I hadn't planned on doing without having to do some major surgery on the on the overall storyline. Whereas in the Honor Harringtons, I could, as Honor's character grew and changed, she could do other stuff besides just the, the sort of linear linear uh, progress that, that I had in mind here. Um, and that does not mean that the the uh, 
Ken Houghton's universe isn't going to be just as complex by the time the dust settles as Honor Harrington's ever was. Uh, and in fact, um, well, I'll just put it this way. If I do my job right with what I want to do here, um, the one thing that everybody's going to figure out when they read the last book in the series is they have to go back and reread all the earlier ones to figure out what's really been going on the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I promise that uh, I'll do my best, and I think I'll succeed at making each book satisfying its own right. You'll you'll be perfectly comfortable with what you understand is happening until you read the last book and figure out that it's actually something quite different, and you got to go back and see what it really was. <laughs> well, I hope that works because that'll just uh, that'll be excellent for us at Bain as well. <laughs> Well, so. Yeah, well, uh, uh, something that uh, that uh, uh, Corinda in your shop and I figured out when we were talking uh, earlier this month, I think, is that uh, April of 2017 will be the 25th anniversary of On Basilisk Station. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I am planning on wrapping up the Honor Harrington storyline in two books. So with just a little bit of tweaking, we can actually arrange to have the last book in the Honor Harrington story arc, which doesn't necessarily by any means mean the last story in the Honorverse, or even the last story that Honor will be a character in. But my originally planned story arc, I can wrap it up on the 25th anniversary of when I began it. (laughs) Well, that's kind of neat. But don't tell me if Honor's not going to go through a dimensional portal and end up in Bazel's universe. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. I did do a, um, uh, I, I did do a piece of. I don't know if it's fanfic when the author does it to his own universe, uh, but I did one that, that combined <laughs> just about all of my universes uh, in a post on my on my website. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty. You know, uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have done that. It's in their new uh, in their new collection we're putting out, which it's a really fun story where they they do a mashup of a couple of their universes. So, um, I love I love Leon. I I just you know uh, it's one of my favorite series. Well, what are you working on right now? Oh, let me see. Uh, right this minute. Um, I've just finished the page proofs for that other publisher on the uh, the uh, next book in the um, the Safe Hold series. Um, we are getting ready to start sometime soon here on the next uh, Worlds of Honor anthology. Um, Tom and Tim Pope, Tom 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 Pope and Tim Zahn uh, are just finishing the. Uh, the uh, page proofs for A Call to Arms, which is the second, I think, of the Manticore Ascendant books and is due out... October. In August? Uh, October. It's it's October, I think. Um, okay. Is Sword August and there October? Because I'm... Yes. Sword is August. Okay. Although it is out in, in ebook form. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the... Um, I'm just really getting started on the sequel to Shadow of Freedom in the Honorverse. Uh, 
So hopefully I will be handing that in somewhere the end of October, early November. Um, then I have to do uh, the next Safe Hold book. And my next solo project after that it was going to be the sequel to um, Sword of the South. But it may be, because we're looking at that April 2017 timing, it may be the sequel to A Rising Thunder, um, which would be the wrap-up for the Honor Harrington books. Get that done and ready to go, and then do um, uh, the sequel to uh, to uh, Sword of the South um, as my next solo project. But in the meantime, we've got... Uh, at least one more, and I think at least three more Manticore Ascendants to do with me and Tim and Tom. That's a really fun series. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm enjoying it. And I really, really... Okay, Tom probably is the only person on the face of the planet who actually knows more about the Honorverse than I do at this point. We're talking about Thomas Pope. We are talking about Tom Pope. Um, he is uh, just... He, he he began as a fan, and he became a very close personal friend, and he is, in a lot of respects, my kind of my alter ego. All the guys at View 9 are great, great, great about, uh, uh, you know, keeping track of the technology and everything else, but Tom is the one who will have two-hour conversations with me at 10 p.m., that are interrupted by my going, ooh, shiny, and him taking notes. <laughs> you know, so he really, really knows the honorverse in and in and out, backwards and forwards. Um, and Tim is uh, one of the one of the best writers I know. I've always loved his stuff. Yeah, Timothy's on. And Tim's on, yes. And uh, so when I was looking at this whole notion of doing novels set in this really early period of the of the Star Kingdom. If you go back and you look at the collection, the anthology uh, beginnings, there's a story by Tim, which is really the starting point in a lot of ways for the entire uh, uh, Travis Lee um, um, series. Um, and um, uh, when, 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 Tim did that after discussing that whole period with me and with Tom when he wrote that story. It, I realized this was the window that I needed into that earlier period. And I was, first of all, I wasn't going to have time to write it. It's kind of like I wanted to do the story of Roger Winton and his contribution to the, the buildup against Haven for forever. And I just never found the time and a spot to do it. So I took the opportunity when we did House of Steel, the companion, to do the novella there that, that did that. But I wasn't finding the same kind of opening, the same kind of opportunity to do this period right around the the discovery of the wormhole. And the tra and Manticore's transition from Iceland into the <laughs> British Empire circa 1900. I mean, you know, there's this huge tectonic shift in in in, in in the galaxy in general, the, the 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 explored galaxy in general, not just Manticore, and because it's set like three four hundred years earlier than Honor's time, the technology had to be three four hundred years younger earlier, and I also wanted them to have a different feel 
from the from the the Honor Harrington novels that I had done. So it was just a perfect fit for me to get Tim and Tom uh, involved in in doing these. Um, and we spend a whole bunch of time being, you know, hands-on in, in conferences where we're deciding what the story's going to be, how it's going to work, uh, and everything else. But then I pretty much let Tim write it. Um, uh, and I, I wind up being involved when they, they hit a problem. They're like, eh, how do we make this work? You know, part of it is they want to make sure that they make it work in a way that fits with my view of how the universe comes together so that we're not violating canon, if you will, while we do it. But also sometimes they, because I think they want to be careful about not making radical changes in how I visualize stuff, sometimes they kind of wind up not being sure how to get from point A to point C, um, and I can kind of come in and take a look and say, well, why don't you do this, why don't you do that, um, and move it all off center, off, off that dead center, if you if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's, it's been a very enjoyable experience for me, and it's been a very um, synergistic experience, too, uh, that I think uh, the stories are strong, the characters are good. And it's filling uh, a niche in the um, in the uh, uh, the the honor versus publicly available canon with information that I've always known was there, but didn't have a good way to share. Does that you, you follow what I'm sure. saying? There? Sure, it's, it's and it's um, it's it's just a. A fun little series that um, is a break from the main line and takes you back in time. And, and when you've read the other books, it it, it has so much more richness um, that you can bring to it as well. So it's it's fun, and that is coming out in October. Um, if you if this book two in that series, yes, book two. If you come to, we're working on book three right now. Uh, but if you come to the Honorverse through the Manticore Ascendant series, uh, then you'll, when you hit Basilisk Station, there'll be, you'll have so much backstory already in there on the, on the, the, uh, the Honorverse. Uh, and the, his- the history, the, uh, the, tra- the trajectory of the historic relationship between Haven and Manticore, for example, um, there's a tendency for the reader to operate completely, understandably, to operate from the, okay, there was no history between these two political entities until the first book was written, because there wasn't. They didn't even exist till the first book was written. But there's, when people look at history, one of the biggest mistakes that, that people make um, is to regard history as a snapshot. This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been, etc. And in fact, history is more like one frame of a, of a movie at any given moment. It's in the process of changing into the next frame, and there are all those earlier frames back behind it. Sometimes in literary universes, you don't get the opportunity to see any of those earlier frames. And that's one of the things the Manticore Ascendant series and the the Star Kingdom series, the Stephanie Harrington stories, um, are are doing um, as well. Yeah, 
Well, the uh, the book that is coming out next is The Sword of the South, which um, extends the... Uh... All right, it's Norfresa, right? David? Yes, it's Norfresa. <laughs> which extends the Norfresa, wor- Norfresa world by David Weber. Um, this is book six, I think we would say, in the Norfresa series and the beginning of the Ken Hoden cycle. Um, it is out at booksellers everywhere. David, thanks so much for being with us to talk about the Sword of the South. Well, thanks for having me. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. These are all the points to two hours ago where the canisters have been reported, the agent said, pointing to a dot-filled map. The red dots are where they are presently, and have been verified by removal teams or local police. The yellow dots are reports from owners or managers where they were reported to have been seen and removed prior to determining the spread method. That's, the president said, looking at the map. There's a line. The unsub appears to have worked down the west coast to Los Angeles, the attorney general said, working from notes. Then Interstate 10 to its joining with I-20. From there, the unsub continued to I-95. Indications are that the unsub then went north through the Washington-New York-Boston corridor, then down again into Florida. The indications are that it was one unsub, or unsub team. If there were more, they would have been expected to spread out. This is definitely a single movement, because the pathogen was initially, he consulted his notes for a moment, because it was asymptomatic at first. There was no indications for some time this was a bioweapons attack. Current estimates are that the unsub could have completed most of this spread within the period prior to the neurological symptoms outbreak. Any idea who he or she or they are? The president asked. We have a number of working suspects, Mr. President. So do we, the director of national intelligence said, Al-Qaeda being at the top of the list. That's an absolutely unfounded attack, director, the secretary of state said. Oh, really? Shall I count the ways? Welcome to the Centers for Disease Control, Mr. Shaw, Dr. Dobson said. Shaw started to hold out his hand, then pulled it back. Nothing against you. Dr. Dobson said hastily. No, sir, doctor, Shaw said, just as quickly. I, I guess I'm having a bad protocol day. We're having a more or less ongoing teleconference this way, Dobson said, gesturing for the former master's candidate to precede him. I'd like to say, not sure where to start. First of all, your dualistic expression is an amazing breakthrough, especially with limited resources. My dad had a lot of insurance, Tim said, shrugging uncomfortably. After Stanford, 
I just sort of, I guess I got obsessed. And I was right. You can get a dualistic expression. He paused as he remembered what his breakthrough had been used for. Is this how Oppenheimer felt after Hiroshima? Probably, Dr. Dobson said, nodding sympathetically. Through here. Mr. Shull has yet to be fully exonerated by the DOJ, Dr. Dobson said. But the CDC is satisfied that while he may have discovered a method of dualistic expression, he did not develop the H7D3 virus. He is, however, the only one who knows anything about dualistic expression. Dr. Addis? Pasteur. Mr. Shull, from what we have gleaned from your videos, the expression is two fully separate viruses. To be clear, the secondary virus is also able to replicate? Yes, doctor, Tim said nervously. It, of course, depends on what you want to replicate as the secondary expression, but a secondary expression can be a replicable organism. My initial experiments were with a non-replicating secondary expression, but... Yes, doctor. Pass. Hong Kong? Mr. Shou, as with these others, I'd like to add my congratulations on your breakthrough, Dr. Bao said. However, it has been used. The question is whether, in your opinion, a vaccine against the secondary expression alone would work. I believe so, doctor, Tim said, his brow furrowing in thought. There is no reason that it should not. I, I was following the progress of the information about the pathogen before the dualism was identified, and I'd like to congratulate you as well, doctor. I read the draft paper before... before. Very brilliant. Just really. Uh... The thing is that even before that, I was, wonder, more like worrying that it was a dualistic pathogen. The change in effect was what I would have expected to see with the dualistic pathogen. And, and the period of fever after the primary pathogen has effectively run its course, that's signs of a dualistic. And the secondary pathogen has to then spread in the the host. So a vaccine targeted against the secondary expression, yes, yes, it should work. We've already started experiments with the Pasteur method here at CDC, Dr. Dobson said. The problem is the question of its affecting the primary pathogen. Standard influenza vaccine would not affect the blood pathogen. A secondary will not affect the primary. Doctors, Dr. Addis cut in. Stockholm, the primary threat is the secondary expression, Dr. Svengar pointed out. The influenza is a bad influenza, yes, at least at the level of swine flu, but it is not an apocalypse. The blood pathogen package should be the primary target, especially given the fact that at least 25% of all infections are blood pathogen related. CDC? Concur with Dr. Svengar, Dobson said. If the neurological secondary packet can be stopped, even after airborne infection, we only really need a viable neurovaccine, and efforts to produce such should concentrate there. Pasteur? While we appreciate the use of our namesake's name in this vaccine development, Dr. Philippe Jardine said dryly, there is one problem remaining, several in fact. The spread on this is enormous, at least the airborne packet. 
It is all over the world at this point and well established. We have produced a vaccine using the namesake method and have vaccinated specimens. And they do have an antibody response against the secondary packet. However, we have also determined that it requires a dual-stage injection, primer and booster. Confirm, Dr. Dobson said. We're that far as well. A single, strong injection caused several specimens to develop the neurological condition almost immediately. As did ours, Jardin said, nodding. Here as well, Hong Kong confirmed. Which means we now have to wait, Philippe said, while the infection spreads and the blood pathogen overtakes airborne as the most common method of transfer. Until the specimens cook, we really don't know if the vaccine will work at all. And even assuming it's of use, vaccines take time to produce. The Pasteur method is the simplest production method in the world, Dr. Svengar pointed out. Ah, and that is the second problem, Jardin said. We have tried infecting various organisms with the blood pathogen. The only organisms that will host it are higher-order primates. We had noted that as well, Dobson said, grimacing. This is very bad, Dr. Bao said quietly. That is a great misfortune. Potassium, Tim blurted out. Excuse me, Dr. Dobson said, looking at the younger man and hitting the button for priority. Potassium transfer, Scholl said excitedly. I, I didn't have a lot of lab materials to work with, and I was using a medium high in potassium at first. Even though I knew I was on the right track, I couldn't get a dual expression. I ran out of the high potassium medium and had to change to a, a cheaper one. That one? I could get dual expression. I realized later that dual expression is inhibited by potassium. I never thought to mention it in... I think you can... We might be able to reduce the likelihood of dualistic expression. Maybe, I mean... It's something to try, Dr. Dobson said, nodding. Thank you, young man. Anything, Tim said, his face working. I mean, this really... I'm sorry, doctors, but I have to say it. This pisses me off. I feel like I've been raped, you know? We'll begin immediate experiments on potassium inhibition, Dr. Svengar said, as well as continuing work on vaccines. And yes, to have your life's great work used in this way, you have my sympathies, young man. I think we all feel a bit raped by this, Dr. Addis said. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the gratitude of a grateful continent spared the life-searing magical blast of 1,000 sorcerers and their apprentices going for the nuclear option against the forces of darkness and karmic fudge. To David Weber, author of New Norfresa series entry, the Sword of the South. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Yeehaw!